What was the root cause of your nervous system being tanked? Because HRV in and of itself is the single greatest non-invasive proxy that we have for nervous system functioning. And you can then take that from there and say the human stress response. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Just kidding. <laughs> Welcome back to the Muslim Intelligence Podcast, ladies and gents. I hope you're doing amazingly well. I am. I feel rejuvenated. I feel recharged. I feel like my heart is full. I'm so excited for life right now and for what I'm tackling. I'm excited to live in my passion every day. I feel like I don't work a single day. I feel like I get to work with some of the most incredible people in the world, both on my team and on my coaching team. I feel blessed. I feel like I'm the type of person who should be paying the people that I work with. And um, I don't know what I did to deserve the incredible people in my life, but thank you all for being part of my life. Thank you to the listeners of this podcast for being part of my life. Thank you to everyone on social media for being a part of my life and for being a part of my journey. And there's really big things to come in my life, in the life of muscle intelligence as a business, as an organization, as we continue to grow, we're looking to bring on A players. If you're someone who's passionate about your life, about your growth, about being part of an amazing team and contributing to a bigger purpose, a bigger mission, ultimately our mission is about you know, really revealing what people are capable of. And I think the path to that is through the human body. And so the human body is something you can't ignore, right? None of us can deny the reality that your body is always there. And if you think your mind is the path, you may be right. Um, maybe the a high performance champion's mind is the path to success, is the path to uh, ultimately accomplishing everything your soul could ever imagine. Uh, and the body, in my mind, is the path to the mind. If you want to master your mind, oh, for so often the path is through your body, isn't it? So for people who truly become masters of life, they also learn to master their body. So many people may rate success as wealth, but I'm sure you know someone, and I certainly know a number of people who are incredibly wealthy and are incredibly unhappy and incredibly sick and ultimately would give anything to have their health back or maybe their happiness and not have to be on medications to get through the day. And so as listeners of this podcast, I encourage you to become an expert in your body. You don't have to become an expert in fitness. You don't have to become an expert in health. Become an expert in your body. Become an expert in how you move. Become an expert in how you respond to food. Become an expert to how you respond to sleep and sun and the environment around you. Those things are massive, massive signals on your internal system. And in every moment, your body is perceiving the environment around, right? It's using your five senses to experience the present moment. So in this present moment, you're listening to my voice. You're probably also hearing many other things. You may be smelling something, you may be feeling something, maybe it's warm, maybe it's cold, maybe you feel pressure, maybe you feel discomfort, 
right? You're hearing things, you're seeing things, you're smelling things, you're tasting things, you're feeling things. Your body's using these five senses to orient you in the environment, in the world right now. And that information is passing through a lens or maybe a filter more accurately, right? And this filter, one way to think of it is a guitar string. And if the guitar string is tightly wound, then you perceive the world in, in a, maybe a more stressed way. If the guitar string is maybe more loosely wound, you maybe don't perceive the world quite the same way. And you can shift this proverbial metaphorical guitar string, or maybe more accurately, the filter through which you see the world. You are in control of it. And an example that I often use is my children. My children are, are absolute angels. And sometimes they can be absolutely hellacious in their uh, you know, energy and their eccentricity, and they can be crazy and rambunctious. And sometimes it really irritates me. And I'm, I'm noticing myself getting agitated. I feel it starting to boil up a little bit. And when I feel that, I start to maybe get on the brink of being angry or being snappy and then fast forward to the next day and they could be the exact same way and, and maybe even more rambunctious and I don't react the same way same events same noise level same you know maybe acting out and I don't react the same way what's the difference the difference is not my children the difference is me but the difference is how I'm perceiving the events. So one thing that I learned very early in life is my children are not ultimately responsible for my actions. I, I'm my, my perceptions are responsible for my actions, or maybe the way I perceive things ultimately influences how I interpret things. And so how I perceive things then has to pass through this lens that I'm speaking of. This lens ultimately is the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is this system that's constantly perceiving the environment. And if that nervous system is very tightly wound, if you're feeling like you're a little bit agitated, a little bit irritated, and things seem to start setting you off, maybe you didn't sleep well, maybe you've done a lot, maybe you're, you're undernourished, maybe you're just pushing really hard. It's really easy to start creating a habit of being irritated then maybe that state of being irritated becomes a trait, right? You start to take it on as an identity, as someone who's like, you know, I just get irritated, really. I've got a short fuse. Well, let me tell you, you don't have a short fuse. You've just become a victim to your circumstance. You become a victim to a trait, or maybe let's say a state becoming a trait and then forming into your identity. Right, something that started off as a circumstance then became a personality trait. Not because it's actually a personality trait, but because maybe in childhood or in teenage years or even in adulthood, you were subjected to high amounts of stress. And instead of being aware of that and changing it, because ultimately you can change your autonomic nervous system, you simply allowed it to control you. You didn't know any better. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to take control. It is your responsibility to understand that your reaction is absolutely within your control. 
you're yelling at your partner, you're yelling at your children, you're getting irritated with yourself. That's not part of you. That's not part of your life. That's not something you need or even want, I hope. If it's become part of your identity, you should probably question it. Some people attach to that, don't they? They kind of like being the victim or they like being the person who can place blame outside of themselves. That's just how I am, right? My, my parents were like that. My grandparents were like that. My siblings were like that. Therefore, so am I. Well, here I am to call bullshit on you because that's not the way you are. You have become the way you are. Your personality is a product of your environment and your personality is a product of your perceptions of your environment. If you want to change the way you are, the way you think, the way you feel, then it's time to learn to take control of your nervous system. Today's podcast is a deep dive into heart rate variability, which is ultimately a measure of this autonomic nervous system with my good friend, Dr. Jay Watts. Jay is probably one of the world's foremost experts on what's called psychophysiology. Psychophysiology ultimately is the study of the interaction between the physiology and the psychology the physiology of the body, and the psychology of the mind. Did you know that these two things control each other or influence each other tremendously? If you want to change your mind, learn to change your body. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in that. If you want to change your body, learn to change your mind. It's a two-way street. And Dr. Jay Wiles and I are going to dive into both, both the mind and the body, and how you can ultimately learn to control your life. And influence your life. And guess what? It's really easy to do, but it's also really easy not to do. And people who succeed make it a priority. And if you're not experiencing enough pain in your life yet, pain in the form of maybe loneliness or pain in the form of self-contempt, pain in the form of fear, you name it. Maybe you're just it's a, the absence of success. It's not, it's not, you don't have enough yet. All those things are within the realm of control for you, within the realm of change for you. The possibility is there if you learn to control your nervous system. I look at everything through the lens of the nervous system. I no longer think that people are bad people. I used to think people are bad people. I, I, I mean, maybe there's some bad people out there. I shouldn't say that. But in general, most people's actions are not their own. Most people aren't conscious of their actions. They're victims to the state of the nervous system. You all know what I'm talking about. You've had a day where you didn't sleep well. Maybe something just puts you off and you're irritated and you had no idea how to control it because you didn't take action. You became a victim to it, didn't you? Yeah, I've been there. Yes, absolutely. When you learn to take control, it's almost like you can watch yourself from the outside. I can sit and I can observe my thoughts. I can observe the feeling in my body as I start to tighten up and brew up. I can literally feel it. And I can then take action to make a change. And it takes minutes or maybe even seconds if you're good at it to get yourself out of that and not become a victim getting sucked into your own bullshit, your own anger, your own fear, your own frustration, which is not productive for anyone. I appreciate you listening to my intro. 
I appreciate you um, being here as a listener to this podcast. And I know you're going to love this podcast with Dr. Jay Wiles. So Dr. Jay Wiles, how are you? Welcome to the show. You're a friend to someone who's been one of my favorite guests. And uh, I've been training really hard. So I took two weeks off. I've been training really hard for the last uh, probably six days in a row. I've been crushing it. I've got my team coming into town this weekend. And, and I've got this massive ego that says I have to beat all these guys because, you know, that's what I do. And so I've been training really hard. And my HRV is in the toilet, completely in the toilet. Um, I've definitely been overtraining. I've been playing baseball. I play pretty highly competitive baseball. And my body's just beat up. What should I be doing? Walk Dude. me through. Walk me through. You, you don't know me. You don't think about me. You can ask me some questions. Like, what should I be doing for HRV? I think it's a good way for us to start, so people can start to understand some of the basic interventions when it comes to HRV. And I could I could answer whatever questions you need. Sure. I think first and foremost, it's probably reasonable for me to say and just start off with you know, mentioning that a tanking of HRV or a suppression of HRV during times like what you've experienced is perfectly normal. Like it's actually what you would expect to see. And it's a good sign. I um, mean, that might sound a little bit funny initially to say, oh, a tanked HRV, let's be happy and excited about this. Well, maybe there's a lot of caveats to that, but actually it's indicating that your nervous system has been taxed, which we know that stress inherently is not bad, right? And I think that it tends to get demonized. And I like to be like the spokesperson to say, that stress inherently is not a bad thing. It's actually inherently a good thing. So I always like to kind of just set the framework for anybody who's like concerned of like, oh man, like, am I being stressed too often? Potentially. Um, am I seeing like these stark uh, drops in HRV? Is this a bad thing? Potentially, but inherently it's actually not a bad thing. It's a good thing indicating that your nervous system is functioning well. One little kind of quick diver, and then I'll get back, is that we've actually seen that individuals and research has demonstrated this and individuals who have more like chronic fatigue syndrome. So they're just like, their adrenals are shot. Like they are feeling anxious and depressed, but their physiology actually doesn't make, uh, it doesn't represent it that way. So we don't see these individuals with tanked HRVs. We actually see them with pretty average and sometimes elevated HRVs indicating that they're much more in a parasympathetic state, but not in a good recovery sense. So it's always good to parse out a little bit of these nuances. But if you're somebody coming to me and you said like, I know my baseline numbers and I know that right now over the last you know few weeks I have tanked, then I would say a couple of things. Number one, okay, well, let's assess kind of what was the root cause of your nervous system being tanked because HRV in and of itself is the single greatest non-invasive proxy that we have for nervous system functioning. And you can then take that from there and say the human stress response. So we know that training, and when I'm referring to training, I'm really referring to exercise most particularly, we know that training is going to tax the nervous system. And we have to have ample time to recover in order for us to gain muscle, to lose fat, et cetera. So I will say, okay, if we know that that's the case, what has training routine looked like and what has it looked like in comparison to previous training routines? So that's more of kind of like an objective. Here's something factual. I will yep. then go and say, all right, well, we'll move to more of the objective number numbers in and of themselves, but I will say subjectively, 
how do you feel? Like if your HRV is tanked compared to normal, but you feel energetic, you feel vitalized, like you don't feel like you're fatigued or like you're lacking in energy. Well, that actually says something. It says a lot. And I think that a lot of people tend to think that and they tend to have an over-reliance on data and say, well, that data or that metric is kind of like the end-all be-all. And I will then kind of judge what I do based on that. Oh and God. it's such a fault, right? It's such a fault. I We have to mesh that or marry that with someone's subjective experience. So then if you're telling me, you know, I feel vitalized, I feel good. Well, then I would say, okay, I'm not as concerned because a one-week dip in HRV could potentially mean a bit overreaching. It could mean a bit overtraining. It could even mean a bit of emotional, psychological stress stress, but that's a part of natural human life. And it's not a bad thing. Now, if you were to go through the next week, two weeks, next month, and we continue to see these downward trends. And the one that I specifically look for is if we see a, a reduction in HRV, but also a reduction in heart rate. So if we see HRV go down and heart rate go down, well, that means your nervous system is really fatigued. Um, you're not in a good position. And some people would think that it would be the opposite. Like heart rate would be up. HRV would be down. That's actually more of kind of like a common short-term overtraining, what we would see, or short-term fatigue, but more of the chronic uh, systemic type of fatigue is when we see both of those down. And that's much more problematic than high heart rate and then low heart rate variability. So uh, those are the things that I'm going to assess. I would say that no matter what, it doesn't matter if you have a longstanding trend of decreased heart rate variability, or if it's just more transient or acute. And I would say that a few days of a decrease or suppressed HRV is considered acute or transient. That the one thing that we can always do that is the single greatest effective means of regulating the nervous system and increasing what we call autonomic control or autonomic regulation, and therefore will increase heart rate variability is to engage in breath work, is to engage in biofeedback, just to engage in these short resets and communication to our through our vagus nerve, to our central nervous system via our autonomic nervous system to calm the nervous system down. What people are probably going to see, and then I'll shut up because I know I'm long-winded on this. Oh, this is great. <laughs> what, what people are probably going to see is they're going to say, well, you know, Jay said to do this. I saw my HRV go up trans if you're wearing like a continuous monitor, but then I saw it kind of go back down to where it was. And then I did another practice and I saw it go up and I saw it come down. That in and of itself is actually very normal. But what we know from research is that the more and more we practice that we're conditioning a response and we'll start to see that trend of heart rate variability go up. So that would be my most immediate thing that I could tell people because it's actually the most readily available. You don't need tech to do it. You just need a few minutes, a few seconds, really just to prime the nervous system through simple breathing techniques that can be potentially with biofeedback or meditative techniques. I think that's the lowest hanging fruit. I want to bring a special message from another one of our amazing sponsors. So if you have been a listener of the podcast for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about the sponsors who have been around for a while, people who ultimately support the podcast and we support them because they're high quality products. You know, most of my listeners, I get a lot of mail or email or, or messages and DMs. They say the reason they listen is one, we have great information, we have great framing. We also curate our products really well. I don't let huge numbers of people, do you know how many people reach out to us to sponsor the podcast? It's enormous. Most of the products are bullshit. I don't want bullshit products. In the you guys would be amazed how many products get sent to me for free and never get shown in the podcast or on my social media, right? And I, I like to keep our, our, our ecosystem tight. 
with organizations and products that I trust. And so the product that I use on a daily basis, I literally had one today, Organifi. Our friends over at Organifi are going to hook you up with 20% off their world-class green juice, red proteins. Uh, they've got an amazing gold drink, which is really delicious before bed to calm you and soothe you. I tend to take my greens and reds post-workout most often. Lately, I've been taking my greens and reds post-workout, not immediately post, but maybe with my post-workout meal, it's a delicious snack that allows me to make sure I'm getting enough micronutrients. I'm a big fan of reds, right? I'm a big fan of taking things like beets and berries because ultimately for men, we want to optimize cardiovascular function. We want to optimize erectile function. We want to optimize pumps. This is something that um, every man should be thinking about. Every man should be taking. Ultimately, the green juice is going to do that too, help you with nitric oxide retention in the body. So head over to Organifi.com slash muscle and get hooked up with 20% off. Another amazing offer before I let you guys get to the podcast really quickly. Don't miss this one. Masszymes.com slash muscle free. Our friends over at Bioptimizers are hooking up with a single bottle of Masszymes at no cost to you. Just simply pay a small shipping price. Offers are only valid while supply lasts. So get in there now. Limit one per household. You will automatically get hooked up simply by getting over to masszymes.com slash muscle free. All one word. So there's a two-step question coming back at you. It's like, one, what, is that, what does that breathing intervention actually look like? And, and if you could walk us through that. And then what is actually happening to the level of the nervous system when I'm doing that breath? Yeah. So, I mean, you can walk through the, the vague. I mean, you, you'll, you'll just walk us through like, you know, so the audience can understand, okay, this is what I'm actually doing. Because what I'm experiencing is a little bit of fatigue, maybe a little bit of brain fog. My body kind of hurts from, you know, the hair down situation. Like it, it's, it, I'm very, um, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing hard. Like uh, the way I would explain it is I've got, I'm having a very steep ascension in my training volume and intensity. So like rather than making it a less steep ascension, it's like, this is an aggressive ascension because I have an objective by this weekend. I want to hit a certain me metric again. It may not always look like that, but mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm pretty burnt and not yeah. that just, just as an example, but I'm curious, okay, what's the breathing intervention? And then what is that actually doing at a physiological level? Yeah, absolutely. I always like to mention too, with high performers, whether it's athletes or those who are kind of like engaging in a lot of exercise for body composition, that uh, sometimes where we are putting in a lot of effort in one place, we're going to pay the price in another area. And for short term, that's okay, right? So if I have athletes who really need to perform at their highest level because they're looking to set an Olympic record when they get to the next Olympics, then it makes sense to have these short bursts of hardcore, insanely focused type of workouts and the price that you pay is that the nervous system is going to be more taxed. You have to acknowledge too, that could that potentially lead to a faster burnout? Yes. Could it potentially lead to a higher propensity for injury? Yes. Does it necessarily mean that you're automatically going down that path? Not necessarily, but there are some things that we have to look at in terms of red flags. But regardless of that, the one thing that we do know is that it doesn't matter if you have an objective or subjective taxation of your nervous system, the single greatest way of resetting the nervous 
nervous system is through breathing. So I'll walk us through the physiology of this and then through the practical application of it. So when we think about physiology and we think about the way that our autonomic nervous system operates, and we have to remember that the autonomic nervous system, which is a part or is a system that is within our peripheral nervous system, which is a branching of all the peripheral nerves from our central nervous system. I know I realize I'm using a lot of nervous system words here, which is our brain and spinal cord. All of these are interconnected with one another. So changes in our autonomic nervous system are going to directly change our brain and, and what's happening in our spinal cord, our central nervous system, and also vice versa. These are afferent and efferent signals. So signals to and from the central nervous system. The biggest thing to keep in mind is that when we want or we identify that our sympathetic nervous system is being overly engaged, so its output is being more active, which for you, Ben, it sounds like that's the case right now. Again, not inherently a bad thing, kind of more in the short term, could be in the long term, but not inherently bad now. What we also know is that that will typically come with a suppression of our parasympathetic nervous system or our relaxation response. So the biggest mediator of our relaxation response is through our vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve. Now that's not the only nerve. We also have the glossopharyngeal nerve. We also have multiple other cranial nerves that will mediate this response. But the one that's most known and most notable would be indeed the, the vagus nerve. Now, what we know, what happens when the sympathetic nervous system is kicking into high gear, when the parasympathetic nervous system is dialing down, is that that communication pathway that's occurring via the vagus is blunted. Um, so it doesn't mean that it's fully kind of uh, just shut off like there's no communication path there. It just means that it's significantly blunted and for good reason. So when we are engaging in a workout, when we're engaging in high performance, like we don't necessarily need our conservation system of energy, which is our parasympathetic nervous system to be highly activated. Indeed, we want our mobilization of energy to be activated, which is indeed our sympathetic nervous system. What we will see physiologically there is kind of an immense change or a cascade of change of hormones, of glucocorticoids, and neurotransmitters, all with the intention of, again, ramping up the energy systems to be mobilized and to be utilized. Now, how does that affect kind of our respiratory system and our cardiovascular system? Well, we kind of know that when we're engaging in a stressor, physiological or psychological, heart rate amps up. And by proxy, we see heart rate variability go down. We also see respiration either go up, so it increases, or we can actually see it significantly go down. And if listeners want to know why, well, it's because a lot of times when people are, are working out or when they are in a, experiencing an acute stressor, a lot of people will unconsciously hold their breath, which significantly reduces uh, overall respiration rate and can increase the stress response. Again, there's nuances as to whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, and, and we can parse that out. So when we're in this situation, we see these fluctuations and changes in the cardiovascular system and in our respiratory system. So if we want to reverse that signaling, so basically like we want to take that sympathetic dominant uh, experience or uh, that flow and we want to reverse it and have it suppressed and we want to increase parasympathetic output, which is all about recovery. It's all about conditioning after we've experienced the stimulus and response of a stressor. Well, the single greatest way to do it is through breathing. And the way that this works is directly on the cardiovascular system and then on our lungs or respiratory system. What happens when we slow our breathing down and we slow it down to a rate? 
rate that's much slower than what is kind of common for people to breathe at. And so just for reference, we typically, males typically will breathe at a rate of 14 to 16 breaths per minute on average throughout the day, different when we're sleeping, uh, but can be pretty comparable. Women will are slightly higher. Um, so they'll generally breathe from about 15 to as upward as, as 18 or 19 breaths per minute. Now, if we want to make a significant change to our nervous system in the immediate, what we just need to do, number one, is change the cadence of breathing. So we need to change from this 14 to 16 breaths per minute, or if you're encountering a stressor, it could be higher, could be much lower to around six breaths per minute. Now, this is just a general rule of thumb. Um, it, it, we call this sometimes a resonant rate. However, there's a much more specific way of finding a resonant rate of breathing. But in general rule of thumb, most people will see a pretty stark change in heart rate and more specifically heart rate variability when they drop down to about six breaths per minute. What does that look like practically? It could be a, an even breath, five seconds in, five seconds out. It could be an extended exhalation, which, help, which helps to more actively activate, I should say, the vagus nerve, which is be like a four second inhale, six second exhale, and really what we know is that people who have stronger autonomic control or an easier way to put that is that they have better control of their autonomic nervous system is we can see that when they just take a few of these breaths, they can significantly influence the metrics that I just mentioned. And that should be really the goal of everybody is to train so much resiliency within the nervous system that when they breathe at a resonant rate or a six breaths per minute, let's say rate, or even maybe a little bit lower, five and a half or five breaths per minute, that they can almost immediately significantly influence heart rate variability. So that is my number one go-to kind of in the immediate is just to engage in that type of resonant breathing. And it could be for as little as 10 seconds. It could be as much as a minute, two minutes, if not longer, if you wanted to practice. Yeah, that's so valuable. And I say to people listening, like the ability to connect into your nervous system, as you say, the ability to control your autonomic nervous system, is, it's like a muscle, right? It's the first mm -hmm. time you contracted your bicep. Did you feel it really well? Probably not. So it's going to take that daily consistent uh, execution. And the best time to do it is anchor it with your meals. So okay. I'll always anchor, you know, usually about four to five minutes of just like th three to five minutes, depending on which time I've got, of like just really slow, resonant breathing and just like so many benefits before you eat, but also just because you know you're going to eat frequently. And it's just a great way to sit down and make sure you're present in your, in your, in your body you're, you're actually, you know, sinking that breath as well. It's a, it's a really simple practice that seems to make such a difference to me. And the way I show up in life is, you know, the way I digest food, the way my body seems to respond to food, my energy after I eat always just seems to be so consistent just with such a simple practice. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the interesting things that I have really paid a lot more attention to over the last few years is priming the nervous system for digestion. A lot of people um, think of the autonomic nervous system as two branches, the sympathetic and parasympathetic, but we miss probably the most important branch of the autonomic nervous system, which is the enteric nervous system or our gastrointestinal tract. Its biggest mediator is via the vagus. And when we can activate the vagus significantly, which is activating our parasympathetic nervous system, then we know that we're going to have better digestion. It's going to lead to less fermentation of uh, gut bacteria and that creates dysbiosis and can cause a plethora of you know, health-related problems. It's just an incredibly valuable tool that people shouldn't look over. And I've just found like for me and my family with my wife and two kids, like this is what we do to prime ourselves before meals. And it may sound a little bit odd, but I mean, I find that digestion has improved so much more significantly than if I sit down, especially if I'm in a more sympathetic state to eat, um, then it just sits in ferments in the gut because I I, it, everything's shunted. As far as family connection, it's a beautiful time to, 
um, just bring an awareness to yourself, to your kids, uh, to be, to be grateful. So I'll usually do, like I said, with the, when the kids are around, it's probably more like a minute mm-hmm. and we'll do, you know, we'll do the six breaths or five breaths. And then we'll do a few minutes of gratitude to go around the table and just changes the dynamic of the family. It changes the dynamic of the meal. It just kind of brings you into that present moment. It seems like so many families in society in general, is just so disconnected. Um, so I, I do my best on a daily basis. You know, we make it a consistent practice, regardless if we're out in public, we often go out for beautiful dinners. We're going to do it anyways. We're going to sit there. We're going to join hands. We're going to breathe together. We're going to be grateful together. And as much as, as you say, it may sound odd to people like, man, it's been, it's made such a difference to my children. I think in the way they show up in the way they uh, are present in their meal, the way they're present, you know, in their body. So, right. and pe- people often talk about, you know, kind of off topic, but talk about like kids acting up. And I was like, well, when, when your kid's acting up and, and you're trying to help them in the moment when they're stressed, you don't have a chance. Like when their nervous system is just on high sympathetic overload, they're freaking out, they're angry, they're upset, whatever. You don't have a chance of giving them some breathing technique at that point. But if you build it into every meal and you're like, hey, we're just going to learn to control our breath. Now they already have that tool in their tool belt. And you can be like, hey, just breathe. And they already know how to do it. It's unconscious at that point. They have greater control of their, their autonomic nervous system and their children, right? And I often say, like, how many adults do you know that can control their emotions? And you ask a child to control theirs. It's almost an impossibility unless you show them how. Yes. You know, not to turn this into a parenting lesson, but I think you and I are both proud parents, Jay. And I think uh, there's a lot to be learned in, like, uh, you know, not, not allowing your child to be a victim to their nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like get, let's control this thing. And people don't realize, and I'd love for you to talk to this, actually. I'm, I'm very curious in your opinion on this. Um, so I, I sometimes take this stance of most people not being aware of what they do. So not, I shouldn't say aware, maybe conscious of what they do. Most people are in some way, some form or another, and maybe not the most accurate word, but a victim to their nervous system. Mm-hmm. So if they're in an environment that's chaotic and stressful and their, their sympathetic nervous system is highly tuned up and they're not sleeping well and their digestion is poor, their sympathetic drive is just on overload. Their parasympathetic nervous system is probably not working. And then you ask them to be calm, kind, and, and nice to each other. And it's an effective impossibility. You're asking them to effectively work miracles and walk on water. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let, let's first teach these people how to connect to the nervous system, how to maybe utilize this resonant breathing. And then maybe they have a chance of actually being happy, enjoying their life, being grateful, rather than always being in that kind of adrenaline-driven, sympathetic overdrive. Yeah. The human brain is really good at convincing ourselves otherwise uh, and that we're okay. And I find that to be so fascinating with all of the individuals that I've worked with who have had kind of that problem is that I would say that there is indeed a level of lack of self-awareness. And this can be conditioned over time. Now, I'm kind of the more and more something happens and we repress it or move to the side, then the more and more it builds up um, and the more and more angst it can cause. And so one of the things that I know is that, and, and this comes from you know working with high-performing executives, Fortune 500 CEOs, is that there are some of these individuals that have this characteristic of saying, like, I can muscle through, I'm okay, like, let me just push and get the job done. And there's something really great about that mentality. 
mentality and it's really helpful. And it's made a lot of these individuals quite successful, but from an emotional standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, it causes so much reactivity. Um, and like you said, like it can, you can see these people kind of go from uh, one state to another in like the snap of a finger. And it's just very interesting. And some people who don't have that happen to their nervous system, they wonder like, wow, what's going on here? Like, I just don't understand that. And I think there's many different reasons. So one could be, yes, that it is a conditioned response that they've learned over and over and over again. It could be due to family context. It could be due to the work context that they've you know been in for however many years, decades. There's a lot of things that can be additive there. But I think one of the things that I've seen in the research and that I've come to the conclusion on is that it's really easy and it's very... Um, opportunistic sometimes for us to convince ourselves that we're okay, that we're not stressed, that we're handling things well. And unfortunately, that lack of self-awareness bubbles up and then it ends up spilling out on the other side. And so what does that mean for these individuals? Well, a lot of them, when you present them with kind of these training mechanisms that we know are effective, I mean, we have so much literature and science and evidence behind the effects of breathing and of biofeedback, they start off with this mind mindset of I'm not stressed. And so therefore I don't need it. And we know the power of mindset that when we start to say that we can't use this as a mechanism or tool for help, then the likelihood of it actually helping is going to be very diminished. It's going to be very suppressed. So that's why a lot of the times it has to start with kind of working in and getting some buy-in from these individuals that indeed this can be helpful. And this is why, and not to derail us too much, this is why I find objective data to be so effective and why I created my first shameless plug, Hanu, um, as a company. There's a lot of power in us when we can subjectively say like, you know, I'm either not stressed or like this isn't going to be effective, or maybe we do something we say, I think it's effective. There's a lot of power in being able to show somebody the immense changes that occur in physiology when they make these changes of like breathing or like slowing down the pace or changing kind of the mechanics of breathing. When they start to see it, it gives them more buy-in because they're like, oh shit, like, look at this. Like, I didn't realize that this is the pronounced effect that I was would, I would experience and it keeps them kind of coming back for more. So that's why I'm a huge advocate. Well, I'm a huge advocate for limiting technology. I'm a huge advocate for other pieces of technology that can be quite helpful. So I think that's like my go-to for a lot of these individuals, because when they start to see this significant pronounced change, well, now it's like, okay, uh, I see like what stress is doing to me. I can't really kind of convince, like you can't trick your physiology. Like when you experience stress, like the body holds the score. Like you're going to see it. And uh, if you don't, then that just means you're being blind and you're not looking at it or you don't know how to interpret the data, which is a definite possibility. But when you do, that's when we see change. There's a lot in what you said there, Jay. And I think, you know, going a little bit deeper and you know, getting into the psyche of high performers and realizing that the state that they're in is the state that got them where they are. And it may not just be the, the not understanding the data. They may understand the data, but they meant like someone like yourself says, well, I see this data and I correlate that with X, Y, and Z positive benefits, right? Like I know that when my HRV is better, my brain works better, I recover more effectively, I sleep better, everything in my life gets better, my ability to be clear in my thinking, my ability to be deliberate in my thinking is greater. But as a as a you know, quote unquote high performer, successful person who's only known what they know, they may not draw a straight line between, hey, I improve my HRV and I feel better, because temporarily they may not immediately see that. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there, right? So I'd love for you yeah. to start going down the path of like, okay, what would someone see mentally, like cognitively 
from these interventions or from, like you say, maybe improving their HRV numbers, improving their physiological parameters? Like I know the answer, but I want to, I want to have shared um, experiences here for the audience so they can start to understand, Hey, want to implement these things, even though I've, I've got this far in my life and I'm doing very well with what I want to do. I, they, they know there's something wrong. They just don't know what's wrong. Right. Yeah. So we tell, we come along and we say, Hey, it's probably your HRV. It's probably your autonomic control. And they do it at once or twice. Like oh, I didn't, that stuff didn't do anything for me. I hear all the time, you know, like one is it with juice, not worth the squeeze. Right. It's like, I have to do this every day and it, it takes time. And, you know, I actually have to control what's going on in my mind. That's a whole, that's a whole different ball of wax. So what type of changes do you usually see in as far as cognitive performance or as far as, you know, you know, what, what tangibly would I see as someone to, who chose to, in, to intervene with these types of practices? So uh, it's a great question. A high performer is only going to want to engage and spend their time in doing things that help them to boost performance. Yeah. Like they're just looking for that extra 1%. And I understand it. I'm a part of that crew as well. So like a cup of coffee versus five minutes of breathing, right? So if I know if I have a cup of coffee, my brain's going to be turned on. So that's an immediate positive feedback. No time, big benefit. Breath work, more time, more, you know, benefit, but it may take longer to see it. So there's a time delay. So there's not always an instant gratification reward there. So walk me through that. Like, how can I get in, in the mind of these high performers listening to the podcast and say, hey, man, you know, you need to do this, but executing it's a whole different game. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so funny because a lot of people will initially try something um, and maybe it doesn't provide them with that immediate transient effect. And so therefore it gets written off. And I understand it again, like when we come back to time, when we come back to optimization, like optimization is all about like, how can I reduce the amount of time? How can I find that minimal dose effect? Which again, I'm totally for, but the problem that I think arises is that people will try one thing one time and then write it off. And it's really, really difficult that if you've written something off mentally, psychologically for you to then come back to it. And then if you come back to it and you write it off again, well, now like we are really, really like it's, it's pretty much never going to happen. So I always say too, like you've got kind of one max two shots at this because we know high performers just aren't going to give it a third shot or rarely will they give it a third shot. So what I would say is, is that again, we're going to want to have to uh, frame everything for the high performer or the peak performer in terms of how is this going to help you boost performance and what are the realistic expectations? Because if you say the expectation is, is that you're going to do one 30 second breathwork session and now you're going to go and hit a PR, good luck. Like we're in trouble. I'm not going to have a job for very long if I make those types of promises. However, if you talk about the compound effects of these things. If you talk about how it's not that right now that you need to spend and you need to start off with 10 minutes of breathwork training. I actually don't want you to do that because I think you're going to burn out from that way too click, way too quickly. I want you to start off with one breath cycle, 10 seconds, a five second inhale and a five second exhale. And I don't even really want you to make much judgment about it. Like, I don't want you to sit there and say like, Hmm, that actually subjectively made me feel better. I'm really not that concerned with it. What I'm actually more concerned with is how can we take these small stepping stones to make these types of habits and behaviors? Because again, if I try to throw somebody into the deep end, just like with meditation, there's a reason why companies and not to badmouth companies like Calm or Headspace have a hard time with retaining customers 
customers is because people go in thinking, yeah, 30 minute meditations, like I'm going to jump right into this, or even 10 minute meditations, I'm going to jump right into this. They do it once, twice, maybe they go for a week. If they're really hardcore, maybe they go for two weeks, maybe they get a month, but that's kind of like a lot of max people's. And then they have this 12 month membership, and then by the end of 12 months, you know, pull credit card off file. And I think a lot of it comes from is that they didn't get enough buy in. They tried to jump into the deep water too fast. And because it's not something like you said, coffee or maybe a supplement like, you know, an NO booster that people might experience the effects real quickly because they didn't have something like that immediately. Well, now it's written off in their brain. It's going to be really hard for them to come back. So I think this starts off with one breath and then it works its way up. Now, this even in and of itself could be a little bit difficult for people because they're like, well, do I even need to spend the time doing one? Like a lot of high performers want to jump into the deep end, but I really tell them to reserve that. Um, I love the motivation. I love the notion of jumping into that, but I'm also fearful that if they do it too quickly, they'll burn out on it too quickly, especially if they don't experience the results that they do. And this again, uh, brings me back and, and I hate sounding like a broken record here, but it brings me back to, well, how can we condition behaviors more effectively and how can we ingrain behaviors more effectively? And so for me, what it ends up being is that I like to kind of use kind of both subjective measures and then objective measures. We've already kind of mentioned more of the objective measures of how does it improve overall uh, heart rate variability or heart rate or resting heart rate, I should say. Um, but then also subjective measures of, okay, well, let's check in subjectively of how does this make me feel? But also too, let me see to kind of uh, subjectively, maybe you could even objectify this. How is it either impairing or improving my performance. One of the greatest tools that I've ever used that I found that a lot of high-performing athletes uh, that they love is integrate this type of practice initially into something that you are already doing, uh, to something that is there that you, you, like, it doesn't make sense for you to skip over. So what does this mean? Okay, I've just got done with a working set. What should I do now? Should I sit my ass on this chair and read through my phone? Or should I stand and do a breathwork practice? And maybe even if you have a heart rate monitor on, watch the effects of what happens after that, that type of, of exercise. Because for them, now it's connected to something that they love and they do, and it's connected to performance. And we have enough research out there, and we're adding on to this research to see that if we downregulate the nervous system in between, let's say, working sets or while we're at training, then we also see that we have lo longer and better endurance. We have better overall recovery. All of these are indeed improving performance for these high performing athletes for these health optimizers. So I like to build it in to things that people are already doing where it makes sense. And then for them to see kind of that transition during that time. Man, so valuable. So you, you started down the path of Hanu and, and this is something you and I have talked about in the past and I'd love to understand what it's doing. So there's, there's a lot of wearables out there. There's a lot of different apps. There's a lot of things that are giving people physiological feedback on their HRV, They're like, Hey, you know, it's low, it's high, it's whatever. And you've, you've come up with something that's pretty, pretty unique. Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. I'll, I'll start off with saying where I saw kind of the gap or the limitations of current wearables. Um, the first thing that I'll mention, I think I already said this before, but I like to kind of just repeat it. And, um, not because of any potential litigation, but just because like, I, I truly mean the statement is I don't want to bad mouth any companies. Um, I love what a lot of companies have done. Whoop and Aura and Garmin and Polar. And a lot of, a lot of these companies have done some phenomenal work in creating uh, good devices that provide fairly accurate information and 
data to users and to common day users. And so I really appreciate kind of what they've done there. But there were two gaps that I saw. The first gap that I saw was that there was nothing that was out there specifically that was doing it really well, that was continually monitoring people's stress response and their stress fortitude or resiliency. And so for me, as, a, as by trade, I'm a psychologist. For me, I was like, okay, why is there nothing that's really f- honed in and focused on that? The second thing is, is that I saw that a lot of the wearables out there were, like you said, been providing really good data and information, but they weren't providing a closed loop system. And so what I mean by that is that you could wake up and look at your, let's say, readiness score or your sleep score, and it would say, yeah, I didn't have a great night's sleep, but then it's like, well, what do I do with that? Like, it doesn't give you any tangible steps of saying, here is, you know, steps A through Z of what you can do to better help improve sleep or better better help improve recovery or performance. And I was like, why, why is that not there? Because we know that if someone has, let's say, a increased heart rate or a suppressed heart rate variability, or their respiration seems to be off, that we can make some tangible tweaks and changes, and we can deduce some information at least from that. So those are the two components that I looked at. I said, okay, how can we marry those two? Like if we could have, let's say, Whoop and Aura have a baby with calm and headspace, like what would it create? Like what would it make? And that's where Hanu came from. So as opposed to other devices that are worn predominantly at night to give you most of their data biometrics, ours is actually worn throughout the day. And what it's doing is it's continuously monitoring. So the first time you put the device on, it actually uh, reviews your data for a period of time and establishes a baseline range. It looks at what is your heart rate? What is your heart rate variability? And what is your respiration rate? And it plots it on this map. What's the upper shelf? And then what's the low, lower ceiling? Oh, so, so yeah, upper shelf. And then what's the, the, the floor? What's the shelf? And we say, okay, when we find that range, what we know is that when someone um, is kind of going throughout their day, depending on their circadian uh, rhythm, depending on a lot of variables, we can actually draw a level of expectation of where heart rate should be, of where heart rate variability should be, and where respiration should be. And when somebody falls in or out of that range, well, then that actually is signifying something. If we see heart rate variability fall significantly compared to this individual's baseline, well, then it means uh, plenty of things, but it could mean, and it likely means that their stress response is being enhanced. Now, is that due to physical activity? They're out exercising, running, walking, moving. It could be. Uh, could it be due to them like reading a really scathing email from their boss or they're in a really tough commute? Absolutely. We know that when they fall out their normal range, that that's a time for the, us to intervene. So that's what we do. We push a notification to the individual and say, we just wanted to check in both objectively and subjectively. Objectively looks like things are a little bit off in your nervous system and what's going on and what's causing it. And we have the ability to log within the app. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm in my commute. This was a skating email that I just wrote or just read, or I was having conflict with a family member. And you can look back over time and say, oh man, over the last week, the thing that was really killing me was work or the thing that was really killing me was relationships with family. Um, and, and then from there, we then offer the opportunity to say, okay, now let's train resiliency because the more and more we train resiliency, the more and more we have fortitude to stress. And that's when we then start a breathwork practice. We start biofeedback and individuals can then enhance their resiliency to stress. This is going to enhance recovery. This is going to enhance performance. And more than anything, like we know that HRV is a longevity metric. And so the more and more we can keep HRV with 
within our baseline range and then above our baseline range, the better we are going to perform, the better we're going to recover, and the more opportunistic um, our body and physiology is going to be um, to kind of the, the detriment of other types of health-related concerns in the future. So I know it's a bit, bit long-winded. No, man, that's great. So um, I won't get into details as to like what the interventions are, but one, one question that comes up for me, and, and I think it's a really, really baseline, simple, simple question, is getting people to buy into the concept of HRV training and even using, utilizing a, a tech such as Hanu really requires them understanding at, at its root level, what would they expect to feel? So mm-hmm. maybe like, wh- what are they feeling now when, when they're not aware of their HRV and they're not aware of this, this um, potential low HRV sympathetic overdrive state, which a lot of people live in? Again, I'd actually like you to differentiate because you know, I often talk about people having an overstimulated parasympathetic nervous system. And when you said something in the beginning, you actually mentioned the the opposite, where it's like, may some people have an over, overactive parasympathetic and not enough sympathetic. So if you could differentiate between those. And then, so what someone in each of those states might feel, and then what they would expect to feel as far as like, when, when I start implementing this new practice, what am I going to feel? Sure. Great question. A lot of people don't know how bad they feel until they feel good, uh, which totally. is kind of a sad thing. So disconnected from their body. Yep. Yeah, it's it's really true. So it may be that right now you could ask somebody like, "How do you feel?" And like, I feel fine. Like pretty I'm, good. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it all the time, man. Right. And then we start to assess uh, both objective and subjective measures, and we're like, "Uh oh!" Like this person's nervous system looks like it is wrecked, um, and it isn't. Sometimes until they start feeling better, that they're like, "Oh yeah, you were right." Like man. I was feeling awful. So, right. you know, uh, that, that's, that is one case. But what I will say is that if somebody is sympathetically aroused, which means that the output of their sympathetic nervous system is chronically turned on, or if they have significant fluctuations of the on turning of the sympathetic nervous system throughout the day, throughout the weeks, um, then what these individuals will typically say is either number one, I'm stressed all the time. Um, number two, they might be saying, I feel muscular tension in my traps, in my delts in my chest. Uh, a lot of people, especially males, um, because they don't want to voice the emotion, sometimes they will manifest in their body and it will manifest in all of this type of muscular tension. And this is a really interesting one, because when we're talking about high performers, athletes, we're talking about people who are doing a lot of training. A lot of them just think it's normal. Oh yeah. Soreness tension. That's just a normal part of what I do because, you know, I'm in the gym three hours, four hours plus a day. And so the natural expectation is that my body will just experience that. And I think that unfortunately that's kind of a common thing that happens with a lot of high performers. And so therefore, like, again, they just, they identify like, yeah, there's tension all the time everywhere. There's pain even as well, uh, which can be very much interconnected physiologically and psychologically. uh, And they just kind of write it off as a bad thing. But what you find is a lot of these people, uh, when they start describing it from uh, an emotional standpoint, or they will start using, using more emotionally laden terms. Uh, either they or significant others or those who are closer to them is like, man, dude, this guy flies off the cuff. Like he is emotionally reactive. It's like one minute I'm seeing, you know, one person, the next I'm seeing another. It's like this, you know, Jekyll and Hyde type thing. And so a lot of times it takes like other people helping to intervene. But then some people, and I find do a lot of people when they really truly check in and try to engage in some self-awareness, they're like, yeah, you're right. Like every single day on the way home, like I'm flipping people off. And when we look and see kind of these metrics, and we've done this with Hanu, is we'll see these people's heart rates spike as if they are like on a good quality job 
jog, like 130, 140 heart rates, their HRV will go from like 50s down to like single digits. Like we're talking like six, seven, eight. Um, and then when they get over that experience, then things come and they return back to normal. For some, it takes a little bit longer and that depends on hormonal functioning in a lot of different areas. And then for some, it just like, it, it, it just goes back to normal. But the next thing they know, they're home and the kids are screaming and boom, all over again. This cascade causes a lot of physiological and emotional, psychological problems. But a lot of these people will say like, yeah, I'm just stressed out all the time. Like I feel it in the body. And this again, is if they're willing to kind of state it now on the opposite hand, these individuals who are more parasympathetically laden, um, these are individuals who are having which sounds kind of counterintuitive. They're having a hard time recovering. And the reason they're not having a hard time recovering is because a lot of these individuals will stay very stagnant throughout the day because maybe they don't have enough energy. Maybe they don't have enough motivation. Maybe they don't have enough drive. And the end result, unfortunately, is that they'll kind of sit in place um, and they won't do a lot with their body. So yeah, heart rate variability goes up, but that's actually more of a sign of, of a reduction in overall output. Like we don't want to think of, a, you know, a super super high heart rate variability as being a necessarily being a good thing or a super low heart rate variability as being necessarily a bad thing. It always has to be assessed within its own context. So these are the people too, that might complain. They might say, you know, I have adrenal fatigue and maybe they actually do, or maybe they say like, I'm just tired all the time. I have no motivation. I can't get anything done. Another word that you might hear is depressed. Like I just don't feel like getting out of bed. I don't feel like doing things. And you would think, oh, isn't like anxiety and stress. Isn't that intertwined with depression. Absolutely. It just manifests itself in a different way, which is why you would, should never take objective data just in and of itself. Because if you know the, the, the person who doesn't know a lot about context, if they looked at someone's HRV, they would say, oh man, this person's rocking it, right? Like, look at them. Their heart rate's super low. You know, HRV is like super high, but all within context. Does that answer your question? I want to make sure I didn't go it all the way. No, it absolutely does. So changing gears a little bit, Last time you were on, we spoke a little bit about the time domain of um, HRV and the frequency domain of HRV. Um, I'd like to just kind of start diving into understanding those a little bit. And I don't think it's very common that people understand, to be honest, because most um, wearables don't include those. And um, I'd like to talk to, to you or I'd like to have you talk about just the the relevancy of those and really what they're measuring. So if you could, if you could differentiate those for us. Yeah. I, I love this question because it's, uh, it's something like you said is not built into everyday wearables and where you, where you normally would see this, uh, at least initially, was in research or more like HRV-specific applications. The great thing about Hanu, again, another sh shameless plug, is that we have built this in as some major categories within our app, both for biofeedback, but also data monitoring. So this is a very complex mechanism of looking at the nuances of changes in the nervous system. So I think the key differentiators here is that we kind of have uh, two pillars um, that build in our HRV. So everything that I'm mentioning right now is indeed heart rate variability or it's HRV. We just use different terminology. A lot of people, when they hear heart rate variability, their mind will go uh, to time domain indices. And I'll explain that in a second. And most people are going to think of a time domain indice called RMSSD. And that's the one that you find in Whoop. That's the one you find in Aura. You find in Apple Watch. Um, well, actually, Apple Watch uses SDNN, a different one, which is another time domain indice. But I think that they've started to integrate a little bit more RMSSD. But if this sounds confusing, let 
let me unpack it a little bit. Um, well, let me talk about the other pillar. The other pillar is frequency domain analyses. Um, and that's kind of a, a completely separate yet very similar domain as to time. So in order to understand frequency, you have to understand time domain. So when we think about time domain indices, we're actually referring to the amount of time of variance that occurs in between heartbeats. So one thing, and it's just kind of an easy, fast explanation is that the heart does not operate like a metronome, or at least it shouldn't. If it starts to operate like a metronome, then we can have significant cardiovascular problems, or we have significant bodily stressors. So again, you can see with somebody's heart rate variability, like if they're doing a high intensity interval workout, you might see a heart rate variability of two milliseconds or even one millisecond. Um, during those conditions, very normal, nothing to write home about, nothing to be scared about. You're resting and you see a heart rate variability of one millisecond or zero milliseconds. Well, that's actually the body's sign that you might be about to go into cardiac arrest or you might, you might be about to have a heart attack. So time domain indices is actually looking at the time differences in between heartbeats because the heart does not operate like a metronome. Back to breathing because everything circles back to breathing. The natural process across the respiratory cycle is that as we inhale, heart rate goes up. As we exhale, heart rate goes down. Naturally, by design, as heart rate increases and it decreases, the amount of variability in between heartbeats has to then change. So as we, as we inhale and the heart rate goes up, the amount of time is going to shrink. And as we exhale, the amount of time is going to widen or is it's going to elongate. This is why it's really incredibly important to activate the vagus nerve by extending your exhalations during a breathwork practice, because that amount of extension can actually lengthen the amount of time. So when we talk about time domains and we sp speak specifically to RMSSD values, RMSSD, and I won't get into the nuances of it, but it's the root mean squared of successive differences, which is a long-winded way of saying is that we are looking that the differences between the time changes in, uh, from one heartbeat to the last heartbeat. And so when you look at, let's say, your aura, and I'll use easy numbers. If you use aura score, it's an RMSSD value. If you have 100 milliseconds as your RMSSD HRV value, that means that when we look at the average variance that occurred from one heartbeat to the previous one, it was about a change of 100 milliseconds, that amount of variance change. So what would that look like? Well, from one heartbeat to the next might've been 900 milliseconds, and the next one would have been 800, and the next one would have been 700. That's the average variance that occurred. So that's what that number means. And we know that as that number shrinks, or if we see trends going down in time, the variance or the amount of autonomic control from the parasympathetic nervous system, because that's where that number is derived from almost solely from the parasympathetic nervous system is being suppressed. So time goes down in that number. That means that there's less activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's mass activation or large scale activation of the sympathetic nervous system. It could be, but what it means is that you are in a mode right now where the nervous system is being taxed. And so therefore changes across the respiratory cycle in terms of heart rate is starting to minimize and the variance is starting to lower an indication of, again, a taxed nervous system. So that's a time domain indice. And I would say that for most people, that is the one you're going to use. So when we continuously monitor people in Hanu and when you're wearing our device, that's the one that we're looking at continuously. You see this change at all times. Now there are other domains of time domain indices that are real, that are really important. And we use these a lot in biofeedback. These are things like SDNN. SDN is, is actually much more of a global type of heart rate variability score. It's looking at variance between um, heartbeats and the mean heartbeat. Um, so the, the change in time that occurs from one heartbeat to the mean of all heartbeats. So 
what, why is that important? Well, we use it as a good scale of overall heart rate variability or general heart rate variability, but because it is significantly influenced by respiratory rate, um, and it probably provides a little bit too much influence, we don't use it as a primary score. It's a good reference score for general heart rate variability. There are other ones like PNN 50 is a time domain indice, And I love this one. The reason why I love this one is because it is the percentage of normal beat intervals that have a variance greater than 50 milliseconds. And in research, what we know is that when someone is recovering well, their nervous system is less taxed. We know the efficacy of biofeedback is, is indeed being efficacious or it's working. We see that score go up. Now there's no range. So I don't want to say like, yeah, you want your percentage of normal beat intervals greater than 50 milliseconds to be more than you know 10 or 15 seconds. Um, it really just depends on kind of you. What we want to see is that over a change in time and from your baseline, are these numbers progressing upwards? Those are the three primary ones that I would utilize in time domain indices. There are also other ones, but we can kind of compare that and even contrast that with the frequency domain measurements. The greatest way to think about this is that, is that frequency domain of heart rate variability or the cardiovascular system is synonymous with an EEG, which is actually looking at brainwave states. So if you take the raw, what looks like squiggly lines to most people, raw EEG data, and you filter it through a transformation, a mathematical algorithm and transformation, we can start to see its component rhythms. So what do we refer that to? Well, alpha, beta, theta, gamma, delta brainwaves. So you can see the amount of power that's held in there. So which one is being more dominant? Which one is you know, maybe not not speaking as loudly. We can do that with an EEG. The same thing occurs with the raw data when it's filtered in through a prism or, or a transformation for cardiovascular or heart data. We refer to this again as the fast Fourier transformation or the frequency domain measures. One thing to keep in mind here is that we don't use the same terminology as like an EEG. So for us, we have what's called the ultra low frequency, very low frequency, low frequency, and high frequency domains. Uh, we don't utilize in, cl in clinical practice, only in research practice, we don't utilize the ultra low frequency, but we do use the very low, low and high. Let me talk about kind of the use cases and what people should actually be concerned with in regarding these. So when you are doing, let's say a biofeedback session, um, so a biofeedback session is utilizing slow paced breathing or resonance breathing, but it's utilizing also data as a guide point. So you're utilizing your biology as feedback as to the kind of how this is working and how effective the strategy is. It's the core tenant of what we do at Hanu Health. During this time, there are a few things that you want to look for. When you slow the pace of your breathing down, we actually pull the majority of what's called power. So again, going back to the EEG reference, power is talking about the intensity, the activation, what's going on kind of within the system. We bring it into what's called the LF domain or the low frequency domain. So in Hanu, you would see a huge spike, a huge increase in LF power. In the research, we refer to this as a meditator's peak, or we call it a meditator's resonance. And that is actually a good sign. That's what we want to see is that huge peak. Well, what does that then indicate? It indicates that for during that practice, you are activating significantly vagal tone. You are activating your vagus nerve to send a signal throughout the cardiovascular and central nervous system to slow down the body, to engage in much more of a lower frequency, slow wave action. And again, this only occurs during uh, slow paced breathing. Now, 
the high frequency bands and, and a lot of people ask, so like what kind of dictates the low frequency band? Well, it's actually both uh, receives input from both the sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system. When we think about the respiratory cycle, we're actually activating both of them because when we inhale, the gas pedal comes on, sympathetic nervous system will ramp up and we see a removal or a retrieval of the parasympathetic nervous system. And then what happens when we exhale? Well, the brake comes on really, really hard. So we see the input there. We know that the high frequency band actually receives only input from the parasympathetic nervous system or a vast majority of it. The high frequency band is really only viewed during non-paced breathing time. Uh, and the reason being is because we call this our respiratory sinus arrhythmia band or our natural breathing band. When we are breathing at a normal rate, uh, when we're not doing slow paced breathing, then what we want to see is power increased in that high frequency band. When, when power is increased in that high frequency band, we know that there is large scale activation of our parasympathetic nervous system. They've done studies where they've blockaded people's vagus nerve, uh, which is uh, uh, obviously the main mediator and modulator of the parasympathetic nervous system. And when they do so, we see the power of HF drop. Like it just goes down to nothing. And then when they reactivate and stimulate it, HF power goes way up. So practically what people want to see is like throughout the day or when they take their readings compared to their baseline, which we again provide you at Hanu, where's your HF power? Again, not when slow paced breathing, but just throughout the day. If we see kind of these really large scale drops in HF, uh-oh, like that means that the parasympathetic nervous system is retreating. And that could be for a good reason or bad reason. I shouldn't say uh-oh. Um, or, or not. So, and then the last one that I mentioned just really quickly would be the very low frequency band, uh, which we know it receives a lot of input from the sympathetic nervous system when we're at rest. So it's a little bit controversial because there's some evidence that say, yes, most of its contributions are the sympathetic nervous system, but there's some, there's some evidence that say, well, it's not fully the sympathetic nervous system. There's other contributions as well, um, depending on thermogenesis and a lot of other circadian cycles, but for a lot of things, um, it is, or a lot of reasons it is due to the sympathetic nervous system. So if we see that power increase in that band, then we can also say that it looks like someone might be having a little bit more of a stress response there. So yeah, that's, that's kind of, again, that's the great. long-winded explanation. No, man. So good. Thank you. And I think that's going to open up a lot of questions for a lot of people. And we can probably direct them to some of the stuff you do, some of the stuff you do at Hanu to ultimately answer more of those questions. Cause that's, that's complex. There's a lot of nuance to that. And I'm sure you have some great resources. I know you've been on many other podcasts to talk about this stuff. So super, super useful. Um, so one question that kind of brings it back to, you know, application is, let's say, you know, a lot of our audience is, is either trying to do one of three things, right? We're trying to build muscle, we're trying to lose fat, we're trying to do both, transform. Um, so what type of benefits would someone see? I think it comes back to what you said before, but just to kind of reiterate, what kind of benefits would someone see? Or, or conversely, we don't think we have the detriment, but what type of benefits would they see from increasing their HRV as far as their ability to change their body composition? Because there, there's a, there's some misinformation or, or confusion maybe around, obviously we know cortisol and adrenaline play a role in fat loss right. and they play a role in energy mobilization. And everyone's like, oh, that's good. We want to mobilize energy. However, if we're mobilizing too often, we know that that's going to cause a problem and that could, could obviously inhibit our ability to utilize fat for fuel. Yes. So I'm curious um, how HRV kind of ties into that entire cycle, right? The HPA axis and, and yep. body's ability to effectively utilize energy. Yeah, no, uh, this is an this is an awesome question that gets overlooked a lot because mm -hmm. a lot of times when we think about strategies for fat loss and kind of mitigating the deleterious effects of like an over amount of fat storage that a lot of times kind of 
modulating the stress response goes unattended. And so one thing that I always mention, I don't think I've mentioned it today on this podcast, but I'll mention it now because it's very important, is that when we think about HRV as a data point, HRV is, again, it's just a proxy. Like it's just data. Like we cannot, um, I don't want people to kind of confound it with something any, any different. So what that means from a practical standpoint is that we can use that data point as a metric of indication change or an indication of change within the human stress response or changes within the nervous system. So now that we kind of, we know that as a proxy, like, I think that one of the easiest things to do initially is to differentiate like what happens and what is normal during a stress response in terms of fat storage and mobilization of energy and why that's a good thing. And then also too, how can that then eventually become detrimental or become deleterious because there is indeed a very normal operation of our physiology during an acute or transient stress response. Um, There's activation of multiple pathways. So let's talk about those. So there's two different systems that we've already talked about today that we need to come back to. So one would be activation of the central nervous system. And then the second would be like the activation of the autonomic nervous system. So when we think about the central nervous system, we're talking about mass activation when someone's experiencing an acute transient stressor of what you mentioned before the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, always a mouthful. When that is activated, when someone initially experiences stress, we have a mass activation of release of glucocorticoids. So most commonly people would know the hormone uh, cortisol. Uh, We know there's mass activation of different neurotransmitters like norepinephrine or epinephrine. And when we have that activation, then that will also signal uh, via efferent and afferent. So to and from signals to the autonomic nervous system, most particularly, yes, the sympathetic nervous system. And we have to remember the sympathetic sympathetic nervous system is there to mobilize energy. It's there to get us out of trouble. Um, and the deactivation of the parasympathetic nervous system is also there as well. So the one that people most commonly know with stress when it comes to body composition or fat storage would be the glucocorticoid or hormone that is cortisol. And so the easiest way to think of this is whereas insulin will act as a key to drive nutrients and particularly glucose into cells for storage, Cortisol will act as a signaling mechanism and a key to release fat and glucose out of the cells to then be utilized as sources of energy. And this will then, cortisol that is, will signal cells to break down these sources of energy into the constituent molecules that they are. So this is uh, amino acids, uh, this is uh, fatty acids, glycerol. This is glucose, of course. And again, the intention here is like, let's get out of this. Let's mobilize energy, or we can use it again as, as help, like in terms of if someone is experiencing a physiological stressor uh, during a workout. Um, at this point, it just needs to be used. We have no reason to conserve energy. So again, breaking down these fats and amino acids, release of glucose from cells all to be utilized. So now what do we have? Well, we have a ton of these molecules, predominantly glucose that's unlocked from all these cells and being mobilized to places that need it most. Again, a good thing in the short term, like this is actually going to cause a suppression of fat storage. So a lot of people think that when they encounter a stress, like stress in and of itself is making them fat or it's causing difficulty with fat storage and body composition, but that's not true. It's actually more of the long-term burnout of, of, of cellular functioning. And we'll talk about that, how it relates to insulin, but also it's the overuse of these symptoms. And then it's a lot of the behavioral components that come alongside stress, which I think, and I would probably argue as a psychologist is the single greatest 
uh, mechanism for fat storage in, relate, in relation to stress. However, it's very much intertied, obviously, with our physiological mechanisms. So back to the, the old adage is, you know, what goes down must come up. So while cortisol will temporarily block the effect of insulin from doing its job, once the sympathetic nervous system starts to wind down or turn down its output, the parasympathetic nervous system will start to increase its, its, its output. We see that cortisol is then cleared and insulin needs to start reworking again and doing its thing. Again, this is the natural physiological process, but what if you have this happen one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 times a day, which is not an uncommon thing. This is when we start to have some cellular dysfunction in terms of how are cells listening to insulin and how are cells listening to cortisol. So the stress response we know, it's gonna signal cells to become less responsive to insulin because when cortisol is being significantly released, it will blockade insulin's use case. But insulin needs to be secreted because there's all of this sugar and glucose that's being uh, that's floating around in the, in, in the cardiovascular and endothelial system and it needs to be utilized. So this causes a lot of problems because insulin keeps knocking at the door, keeps trying to drive in, but cortisol is blockading it. So over time, again, this is going to cause a lot of problems. Energy sources are not being able to be drawn back into cells. It, re it, it significantly increases cardiovascular output and causes atherosclerosis uh, um, concerns, I should say. Uh, and again, not, not, a, not a great thing. So that's, that's one thing I want to talk about though, like the role that appetite plays here, because the biggest concern that I think uh, that I have with the human stress response and the role of natural physiology and physiological process is what stress and cortisol and insulin resistance and desensitization of cells can do to overall appetite. And we have some really good literature here. So what I will say is that when we are stressed, especially when we're experiencing a more acute stressor, we tend to lose our appetite. We know actually from research that about two thirds of people, like when they're experiencing stress, uh, sorry, I should say most people when they're experiencing stress, lose their appetite. But afterwards, about two thirds of people will become what's called hyperphagic. So hyperphagic is the tendency to eat more. And then about a third of people will become hypophagic. And there's reasons behind that. But for hyperphagic individuals, which tends to be again, two thirds of people, when we recover all of, and this is from stress, all of the physiological processes that we experience during the stressor have to naturally reverse. So energy is going to have to be driven back into cells and our appetite is going to go up. We have two competing hormones, which actually work antagonistically against each other um, at this time. The first would be CRH, which is released from the HPA axis. Uh, this is corticotropin releasing hormone, and this will communicate with certain brain regions to reduce appetite. It's secreted very fast. It's a matter of seconds to minutes. Um, so when we are in acute stressor, it starts right away and it reduces appetite. The glucocorticoids like cortisol are released much, much more slowly. We're talking about a matter of minutes to hours to work their full effect and minutes to hours past that to then be cleared. And that will actually stimulate appetite. So when CRF is cleared and goes down and glucocorticoids are still up, it significantly increases appetite. And research has demonstrated time and time again that people are typically not driven towards foods that are, let's say, adaptive or healthy. A lot of people are moved towards more starchy foods like cookies and pastries and donuts. And this causes mass problems, obviously. So I think that's the other problem. And then, and then the last one too, and then I'll, I'll pause. 
would be just kind of the role of health behaviors and dopamine. Uh, we know that when we need a sense of relief, uh, when we want to kind of increase kind of this, the sense of relief after a stressor, we know that dopamine is secreted in anticipation. And when we start to make these connection connections and we start to condition kind of like our go-tos, whether it is, you know, maybe poor food choices, maybe it's even sedentary lifestyle, but for the sake of this you know, discussion, poor food choices, uh, we tend to turn more towards those things that we know will be at least helpful in the short term. And we always have to mention in the short term, um, because it's going to release dopamine, it's going to make us feel good, but very similar to drugs. Like after a while, the more and more we're going to need more of it in order to feel uh, uh, it's, it's effects and feel its results. And so we either change that behavior or we just add more of a frequency or more of a duration or more of an intensity of doing it, you know, in the field of psychology, we call this tolerance. And basically it's because we become desensitized. So I think it's all those factors and all those variables that change us physiologically. Um, and then again, like for the sake of the discussion today, if we want to talk about gut health, we also know that stress significantly impacts gut health, which impacts, um, fat metabolism and, and utilization. But I think that those are the really, what we see in the literature as the primary mechanisms for stress effects on body composition. Man, that's like the masterclass right there. Uh, <laughs> that was great. No, you did, you did an incredible job Thanks, and your man. wealth of information is just so tremendous. So we're coming on short on time. I wanted to just kind of come back to Hanu for a minute and talk about where you guys are in the process. Are you, are you officially released to the public? Uh, I know I've recently been given a, a, a early access uh, and I'm curious where you are as far as listening to the public. Are you guys now uh, available to the general public? Are you are you in beta phase? Where are you, where are you with that? Where can our audience go yeah. get that? Yeah. So at the time of this recording, I have to look at the date. It's June 22nd. Um, so June 22nd. So we're just starting summer uh, and we will be out on August 1st for like mass market release, but you can go ahead and get yours now, not to sound, sound too salesy, but the, the price of the device, plus you also get um, access to the application for 12 months. The normal retail is $300. However, we're offering um, for any pre-order, which is available now, hanuhealth.com, you can get it for 40% off. So that's 180 bucks. Um, which I mean, again, in my That's humble crazy. opinion is a steal, um, yeah. and that will change here pretty soon. Um, but for right now, um, 40% off at 180 bucks, uh, but we'll, we're, we're shipping out in August. We thought it was going to be in October, but we always like to, uh, we like always like to over del deliver and, you know, uh, under promise. Um, so we're going for August is going to be our ship date, August 1st. And we're really excited to get it out in the hands of people, but you can order it now. I'm just expected to be here in August. Does, does the device come with like access? Access to the Jay Wiles Masterclass on Stress Physiology. <laughs> That's not a joke. So no, I know you I have know. an amazing podcast, man. Let's talk about that. Thanks, so you have a Hanu podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got Hanu Health. Yeah, and, and we drop a lot of information there. So my co-host on that is oh Patrick McCune, um, yeah, who amazing. yeah, he's so good. Um, who is like the breathwork expert. Um, he's the extraordinaire on that area. Yep. So he he co-hosts the episode once a month with me. We do QA's where users submit their questions regarding breath work. And I also do like own separate uh, interviews for of of professionals and you know, health influencers and those who are experts in their in their uh, relative area, and then also do QA's for HRV because a lot of people have a lot of HRV questions because it's 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 confusing. And a lot of people who may have listened to this, especially when I was going through the time domain, frequency domain stuff, they'd be like, man, my head was spinning. So we really try to spend just a lot of bulk time parsing that out there. And it's really funny that you mentioned this whole idea 
about like a masterclass, one of the things that we are are doing, and we're toying around with the idea. So I don't want to just say like 100% that we're done, but if a gift that we want to give all of our pre-orders is a period of time of like access to a, a, a Q&A, access to kind of like more of an in-depth deep dive into the product. So they're using the products and they can come on and ask me questions. And so we're going to offer that like as, as something like a large scale Zoom class to anybody who pre-orders the product. So hopefully that gives a little bit more of an enticing, um, uh, you know, call for those individuals who want kind of like the more in-depth deep dive. Well, it's hugely valuable. And for any listeners that don't yet see the value of HRV, when I first started to understand HRV, I made the statement that I think this is the single most important thing we've done to optimize performance, or we've started to understand to optimize performance that's come along in, you know, in my lifetime. And subsequent to that, when I started to discover the, the implications of breath work, I was like, this is definitely the greatest performance aid that's ever come along in my lifetime. I was like, this, this in my mind, you know, performance breathing has, has implications that are on par with performance enhancing drugs. And that sounds ridiculous, but I really believe that's true, uh, especially with my experience. Like the, the benefit, the things that I can do in my training sessions, just controlling breath work would blow people's mind. Like my ability to access both ends of the spectrum as far as sympathetic and, and calming down in really short amounts of time blows my mind sometimes. Yeah. Like, holy, I didn't realize that what I could do. Right. It's, like, it's like the idea of the mother lifting the car, right? It's like, yes. what's happening there? And how do we kind of reproduce that state? I mean, obviously that's an exaggeration, but that's really what you're trying to do. You're trying to access, like, I call it the warrior and the monk, right? I want to be able to do what's uh, whatever is, is physiological possible within the parameters of my body without hurting myself. And then I want to be able to turn that off as quickly as possible and become a monk so I don't stay in that elevated state. And, and the ability to kind of touch both ends of the spectrum, man, I mean, I train pro athletes and, and I'd say most of them have no idea how to control this stuff. So and when true. you teach them, you're just like, their, their performance just skyrockets and their psychological performance skyrockets. They don't tend to be victims of their own mindset anymore. They can control where they sit. I can be aroused or I can be calm, but I'm not sitting in my mind stewing on the things that I can't control. And now you're in, you're in control of that. And that's just a, an amazing gift. So man, what you're doing yeah. uh, is, is going to make a, make a lot of people more healthy and make a lot of people's performance better. And uh, how you're doing it in such a good way. And uh, man, I, I'm, I'm honored to be uh, able to try out the device and, and have you on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. appreciate you giving me time to talk about it as well. All right, all right, all right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Dr. Jay. He's a buddy of mine. We discussed the interventions for HRV when low HRV becomes a big issue. I was sitting here just before I started recording this, and a balloon popped in my house. And I was pretty quick to react. And I was like, oh, where's the state of my nervous system? I literally use my environment, or maybe more accurately, my response to the environment as an indication of how tightly tuned my nervous system is. So I encourage each and every one of you to take this information from this podcast, Dr. J, and start paying attention to the signals your body is giving you. Do things stress you out? Does a balloon popping maybe make you jump off your chair? Do you know, some people have the ability to rub you the wrong way? Guess what? None of those things are a result of anything outside of you. All of those things are well within the realm of control of you and your ability to control your nervous system. Yeah. And so as Dr. J says, the, the primary path is through the breath. We also can access the nervous system through the visual system and the muscular system. 
But ultimately, ladies and gents, you need to have a healthy nervous system. And that's why we exercise. We exercise ultimately with intelligence. Exercising with intelligence is simply taking an intentional approach, learning how to do things correctly for your body. First, selecting the right exercises, second, doing them correctly, and then learning how to intentionally progress those things in a way that ultimately doesn't make exercise uncomfortable. It makes it enjoyable. First, you want to learn to love exercise. I believe you can love exercise. I think exercise is play, right? I spend a lot of time in curiosity and exploration when I'm in the gym. And I still use the curiosity and exploration to push my physical limits, both, both mobility and strength and endurance. All those things are built in, but it's always from a perspective of like childlike wonderment. I always want to see like, hey, how can I do this? How can I push harder? Gosh, that feels great. That feels so hard. And I learn to enjoy it. Right? Oh my God, I'm giggling because it's burning. Like, uh, yeah, am I weird? No, maybe. <laughs> but uh, not something that you can't do also by becoming more in tune with your body, more curious, and ultimately seeing the benefit in this explorative mindset. So ladies and gents, thank you very much for tuning in the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. If you did enjoy this podcast, I would appreciate it if you share with at least one person you know and love who aspires to understand their nervous system, understand their body, train with intelligence, and ultimately live their greatest life in the body they love. This podcast is brought to you by our amazing friends over at Organifi, organifi.com slash muscle. It's going to get you up to 20% off. And you can also head over to masszymes. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S. Dot com slash muscle free to get hooked up with a free bottle of best times a product I consistently use and I highly suggest you do too. If you want to support better digestion and ultimately extrapolate all the nutrients you're paying for, start taking digestive enzymes. Guys, thank you very much for being here. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. We have so many amazing guests coming to you soon. I hope your heart is full. I hope your body is strong. I hope you're challenging yourself every single day. Get uncomfortable. Let's all grow together. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.